Well, we missed you all last week. I don't know where you were Sunday. No, we were, we were out on vacation. I'm grateful to Pastor Art for filling the pulpit for me while I was gone. Someone asked me, what did you do on your vacation? I said, uh, we beat back the curse. That means I pulled weeds and planted flowers <laughs> and spread bark mulch. So uh, I have the upper hand at the moment. Won't be but a matter of a couple of weeks, and it'll come roaring back, as you well know. But it was good to be out and just to be away a little bit, get my head cleared out, and even better to be back with you this morning. Those of you who know me know I love history. I am a, I am a history guy. And I like it for so many reasons, but one of them is, is turning points. Historical turning points, those, those moments in history in which an event or a series of events actually turns and changes the direction of a civilization even, or a society, or, or the movement of various people groups. And one of those events that is, uh, doesn't get much press anymore, particularly for folks who were born and brought up here out in the West is uh, something that happened back in the late 1700s, late 1700s. Now, where I grew up, the, the late 1700s, that's, uh, that's not old. That's uh, actually sort of late model. The town I grew up in has houses that were built in the 1600s, and they're still occupied. So something that happened in the late 1700s, that's not ancient history for us. But in the late 1700s, there were farmers in Virginia who were sensing that, uh, that the amount of available farmland was shrinking and they desired to go west. They had heard about the, the opportunities that lay to the west of them. But there was, a, there was a problem. There was a geographical barrier. It's called the Appalachian Mountain Range. Again, for West Coasters, you know, East Coast mountains, they, uh, they may not impress you that much, you know, rising only somewhere between four to, say, 6,000 feet, but they are still formidable. And the Appalachian Mountain chain actually is a series of ridges and valleys, connected ridges and valleys that run parallel to the coast, beginning in Georgia and running all the way to Maine. And it was the Appalachian Mountain range that was preventing these Virginia colonists from, from realizing their desires to move west. Now in 1750, a man by the name of Dr. Thomas Walker discovered that which was known to some of the Native Americans, that there was a pass through those mountains. It's called the, the Cumberland Gap, the Cumberland Gap. And although it was known about, it was, it was a very difficult trip. And so not very many people would make the, the attempt to pass through the Cumberland Gap in order to get onto the other side of the Appalachian Mountains and enter into what we now know as the states of Kentucky and Tennessee. But late in the 1700s, 1775 to be precise, a group of loggers was employed under the direction and leadership of a frontier explorer by the name of Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone led this group of loggers, and they were rugged kind of guys, to 
go to the Cumberland Gap, scout it out, and widen it in order to make it passable for settlers to move. And so that's exactly what they did. And in the next 35 years, it is estimated that upwards of 300,000 immigrants poured through the Cumberland Gap into what we now know as Kentucky and Tennessee and beyond into the Ohio River Valley and the continual settlement of the American West was underway. The Cumberland Gap. You can go there, by the way, and it's kind of a cool place to visit for vacation. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, and Matthew 10 is, and I tell you all about the Cumberland Gap, not just because it's a cool story, but because Matthew chapter 10 is, in a sense, a theological Cumberland Gap. It is a way through the, the seemingly insurmountable obstacles of Jesus' clear and compelling messianic credentials and Jewish rejection and unbelief. How can it be that this one... Who, who fulfills every prophecy down to the, to the minutest detail, this one through whom the, the power of the Spirit was so evident that he worked the most amazing miracles, who was clearly the Jewish Messiah, who preached that the kingdom was close at hand. How could it be that his people rejected him? That the nation turned away from him? And... As we said a couple of weeks ago when we began this, where this is the second part, by the way, of something that was started two weeks ago. How can it be what happened to the kingdom that was close at hand? Where did it go? What happens? John, in his gospel, in John chapter 1 and verse 11, he, he comments theologically on this whole, this whole obstacle, this, this, this whole question and he says, he that is Jesus came to his own, right? And those who were his own did not receive him. John is just recording what happened. Matthew will explain it. Jesus was very, very careful in presenting his messianic qualifications for all to see and hear. The prophet Isaiah said the, the people dwell in great darkness, but they have seen a great light. Speaking there of the people of Galilee, actually, it is the land of Galilee that, that dwelled in darkness, and they saw a great light, and that great light was Christ. He moved among them. He ministered to them. And not only that, but, but here chronologically in his, in his, what we call his public ministry, by this point, he is now making his final tour through Galilee. And so he multiplies his efforts by commissioning and sending out 12 spokesmen, 12 itinerant preachers, 12 gospel proclaimers. And what Matthew gives us here in, in chapter 10 is, is an encapsulation of the instructions that Jesus gives to these men who are on a mission from God. Ordinary men. 
chosen by Christ for a most extraordinary preaching ministry. As we look at the text this morning, and we are looking at verses 1 through 15, and we're looking together at the commissioning of these these 12 men, and there are three highly significant observations about them and their ministry that we have to make. And the reason we have to do this is because if we don't do this, we are, we are liable to, to a serious misunderstanding of the New Testament. Getting this right helps the rest of the New Testament as it begins to unfold before us. This is a Cumberland Gap of theological proportion. Last time, two weeks ago, we looked at that first significant observation, and it was this, that, the, that these men have what we called a delegated authority. Now, I'd love to re-preach that sermon. It fired me up, but I'm not going to do that. If you haven't heard it or want to hear it, it's available on our website. But let me just read the text for you, beginning in verse 1, the delegated authority. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Matthew lists them for us in pairs. Luke tells us they went out in pairs. I'm going to assume that these are the pairings in which they went out. Now, again, we noted a couple of weeks ago, this is the only place in Matthew's gospel where the twelve are called apostles. They are called apostles. What is an apostle? Well, in the New Testament, in its, in, its, in its most extensive use, an apostle is one who has been sent forth to represent an official. One sent forth to represent an official. These men, called by Jesus, summoned by Jesus, called apostles, are being sent forth by Jesus as his official representatives to the nation and the region specifically of Galilee and the villages of Galilee in order to proclaim the Messiah's message. While Jesus himself will concentrate this remaining time on those cities surrounding the north portion of the Sea of Galilee. That's what Matthew tells us. Jesus will focus in their cities, the cities in which these twelve have grown up, while they go to the outskirts and multiply the work. Now, these men, we noted last time, they did not volunteer. They did not volunteer. There was no posting, wanted twelve apostles, inquire within. Jesus summons them, verse 1. You see it, Jesus summoned his twelve. That kind of terminology is kingly terminology. The king of all creation said to these twelve, you will go and this is what you will do and this is the power that I will delegate to you in order to do what I'm telling you you have to do. It was a call, a summons to be his 
emissaries, to, to act with his authority. Simply put, it was a delegation of the powers of the age to come. The ability to grant a glimpse into Messiah's kingdom. A delegated authority. Second, they have a definitive announcement. A delegated authority. Secondly, a definitive announcement. That's in verses 5 and through 8. A definitive announcement. An authoritative announcement. Now, Jesus gives them here in verses 5 through 8 kind of a threefold mission. Basically what he says to them is he tells them where they are to go. He tells them what they are to say. And he tells them what they are to do. So there is no making it up on the spot. There's no freelancing. There's no entrepreneurial spirit involved in this at all. This is the king. He says, I'm calling you. I'm telling you, you go here, you say this, and you do that. Got it? Got it. So where are they to go? Verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are not, Jesus says, to even enter into or onto a road that will take them to a Gentile village. None. Nor are they to go to any city or village in which the Samaritans reside. Now, the Samaritans, just to you know, remind you, were those exiles from the, from the Assyrian captivity that were left in the land, the poorest of the land, and, and they mixed with the pagans that were brought into the land, and they, they formed a syncretistic religion. It was not Judaism, but it was not entire paganism. It was this sort of blend, and they were a very despised people by the Jews of their day. So Jesus says, listen, this is where you are going to go. You are not to go where you'll find any Gentiles, nor are you to go where there will be any Samaritans. He is very, very specific here, and he is limiting their their movement and their focus exclusively to Jewish evangelism. Jewish evangelism. Why? Why does he do that? The answer he, he gives here is because Israel's leaders have, have abandoned them and they, and they are like lost sheep. They are like lost sheep. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 6 speaks about the nation in this way. He uses the same terminology. He says, My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along the mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. The leadership of the nation has, has abandoned the people. And so Jesus here says that the same thing is true. The lost sheep, verse 6, of the house of Israel. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And so they must hear the message. And you must go to them. 
with the message. Now, these instructions are, are vastly different than how Jesus, or how Matthew, rather, finishes his gospel, aren't they? I mean, keep this in your mind. Don't go on any road that will lead you to a Gentile village. Do not enter any city in which there are Samaritans. Rather, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, only to the Jews. Now, keep that in your mind, and then just flip to the right, to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Same author, same gospel. Here, Jesus says to the disciples, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. All the Gentiles. All the Gentiles. Or, as he says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. What? What gives? What's changed? Why is it, don't go near the Gentiles, don't go near the Samaritans, focus exclusively on the Jews, and now to say, go to the Gentiles, go to the Samaritans. Something has obviously changed. What accounts for the difference? Why the change of instructions? Same people, different instructions. Well, the answer is found in Matthew chapter 12. It's actually found in Matthew chapter 12. Now, it's found in the entirety of chapter 12, which we will get to. But I think it can be, can be extracted, as it were, in nugget form in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. It became self-evident that the lost sheep of the house of Israel had no desire for the shepherd. That they were not with him. And by not being with him, they were in fact what? Against him. Against him. And it is that reality that explains the change of marching orders by the end of the gospel. So he tells them where they're to go. Verse 7, chapter 10, he tells them what they're to say. And as you go, preach, proclaim, not once, like all the time. Everywhere you go, preach and proclaim, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that ought to be a familiar phrase to you. Because that's exactly the message of John the Baptist as recorded in chapter 3 and verse 2. Furthermore, it's exactly the message that Jesus began when he started his great Galilean preaching ministry recorded in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. It is the same message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom long promised in the prophets has now drawn near. It is only waiting upon 
Israel's repentance in order to enter in. It is right there, the door, as it were, is standing open before them. And by the way, this opportunity will only remain for a short time. It will only remain for a very short time. Therefore, they are to keep moving. They are to keep moving. As you go, you see it in verse 7? The idea is not to go settle down, build a house, you know, start worship services. This is, a, this is an itinerant, moving ministry. You are to be moving from city to city, village to village. And as you are moving, you are to continue to proclaim to them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, the opportunity is very, very short-lived. Very short-lived. Soon... Very soon, the message is going to change. The proclamation of the nearness of the kingdom is going to be withdrawn. And actually, what will happen, and you can see it in chapter 13, what will happen is the the proclamation will no longer be that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, what will begin to happen is is the use of parables. Parables. They are introduced now, essentially, for the first time. What are parables? Parables are designed to reveal and conceal at the same time. They're to reveal truth to those who, are, who understand, and they are to conceal truth from those who are blind. The use of parables. And you can see it in uh, looking over beginning in verse 31. I'll just point these things out to you quickly here, but The use of the parables, verse 31, you'll see this expression, the kingdom of heaven is like. You see it again in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like. So these are uh, illustrations, stories that are designed to reveal and conceal something about the kingdom of heaven. But, but what I want you to see for now is the change in the message. No longer is it at hand, it is now like something. Furthermore, Jesus' message will begin to, to become more private as it relates to his disciples, and it will be at this time that he will begin to introduce the reality that he is going to die and be raised again. You see it in verse, or chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This was not a message that Jesus taught to his disciples in the early years of their time together. This was a message that now began to occur After chapter 12, after the lost sheep of the house of Israel made it clear they had no interest in the messianic shepherd. It's a change. And I told you, you need to be aware of these changes because this has a dramatic impact on how we begin to understand the New Testament as it rolls out. So, where they're to go, what they're to say, verse 8, chapter 10 what they are to do. They are to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They are to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus has given them an authority to do kingdom miracles. 
These are not, these are not sleight of hands. These are not just a few sort of, wow, that's kind of an amazing, I don't know how you did that. These are an inbreaking of the future kingdom to come. It is, it is as if the door of heaven cracked open and through that crack pours the power of the age to come. Now, they're given here, Jesus gives it in verse 8 in what we call present imperatives. That means they're commands given in the present tense, meaning they're ongoing commands. That means everywhere they are to go, they are to preach the message and they are to do these things. They are to heal, they are to raise the dead, they are to cleanse the lepers, they are to cast out demons. What they are to do is they are to demonstrate the reality of the kingdom age. Beloved, what is one of the things that defines the coming age, the age to come, the the kingdom that will come someday? Well, one of the things that, that defines it is no more misery. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day in which misery is no more, in which the ravages of sin upon this creation... Is, is set back, is, is conquered, in which the, the work of Satan and his minions, who are constantly attacking the people and work of God, will be put down fully and finally. And this is a glimpse. That's what they do, is they, they give a glimpse. What is it going to be like when Jesus returns, beloved? This is what it's going to be like. He's going to banish disease. There'll be no more leprosy. Death will, will come only in rare circumstances. And when someone dies, they will have access to the resurrection and the life. Put them on an airplane, fly them to Jerusalem, and let Jesus raise them from the dead. You know what I'm saying? It's like the ultimate health insurance plan. It's, gonna be, it's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our understanding. And by the way, they receive this power free of charge. And they're to give it away. Free of charge. They got it freely. Give it away. Freely. Delegated authority. Definitive announcement. Third, a dependent approach. Third, a dependent approach. 9 through 15. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. It's really interesting. Normally when you set out on a journey, the prudent thing to do is make preparations. Wouldn't you agree? You know, American Express, don't leave home without it, right? And Jesus, he says to them here, things that are sort of contrary to logic. He says to them that what I, want, what I want you to do here is I want you to make no preparations. Zero. No preparations. By the way, this is not instructions for the modern missionary movement. Okay, you guys are off the hook. You're off the hook. This is, this is not teaching principles of how to do missionary work. There is something very unique happening here, something that is, that is very circumstantial and time-bound. 
And we know that, by the way, because, because later on, after the Passion Week, or during the Passion Week, Jesus speaks to the twelve again. And he says, I'm sending you out. And by the way, he gives them instructions there in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, that completely contradict what he says to them here. Here he says, don't make any preparations. There he says, make preparations. They're to have no provisions. None. Verses 9 and 10. No gold, no silver, no copper. That's, that's just speaking about the, the various types of money. Copper being the, the, the smallest and, and least valuable. Don't fill your pockets with pennies and don't bring any gold bullion. No money. Further, you're, you're not to take a bag for your journey. Small, the idea is a small leather bag in which you would put some provision, some food. And you're not to take any food with you. No food for the journey, no money to buy any. Furthermore, you're not to take any additional clothing or walking gear. You've got, you got the coat on your back, that's what you have. Why? Why? He answers it for us. The end of verse 10. For. That's, that's, a, that's the answer to the question. For or because the worker is worthy of his support. Think of it this way. Your employer is going to provide for you. He has called you. He has given you instructions. He has sent you out. And He is going to take care of your need. You are His worker. You are worthy of your wage. And the boss will provide. The boss will provide. God will provide for you. How will God provide for you? Simply put, through the hospitality of the people to whom you are going. To the hospitality of those to whom you're going. Those who want to hear and receive your message will provide for your needs. So there's to be no planning, no planning, no provision, no planning, meaning in verse 11. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who's worthy in it, stay there until you leave. Now the idea of worthy here or worthiness is the idea of they're receptive to the message you're preaching. This is not speaking about any sort of inherent righteousness. This is a righteousness that is, that is illustrated and demonstrated by a willingness to receive the message of Messiah. If they'll hear your message and they invite you to stay with them, stay with them. Don't shop around for the best digs. Okay, wherever, whoever opens up their house, you stay there. And when you enter the house, verse 12, give it your greeting. Give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, and, and the idea here is not the physical structure, it's the household. If the household is worthy, that is receptive to the message, then, then give it your blessing of peace But if you find out later they don't really want to hear your message, then it says here in verse 13, take back your blessing of peace. It's not like you retract it. The basic idea is you move on. So if if this is a house that is is occupied, a household of people who want to hear the Messiah's message, stay with them, and your very presence with them will be a blessing to them. If you find out that once you're there, they say, oh yeah, of course, come in. But then when you begin to speak to them about the nearness of the kingdom and they say, that's ridiculous, then you just leave. You leave. You withdraw your blessing. D.A. Carson has a good thing to say about all of this. He says, and I quote, the twelve were emissaries of Jesus. Those who received them received him. Jesus says that, by the way, in verse 40 of this chapter. 
Their greeting was of real value because of their relationship to him. Loss of their greeting was loss of their presence and therefore loss of Jesus. That's a really interesting thing. You think about that. Invite them in and as long as they're there, through them Messiah is close at hand and his kingdom. But if you won't listen, if you're not interested in what they have to say, when they leave, the kingdom is going to draw away from you. It's, it's close in the message. And when you reject the message, it's no longer close. It's no longer close. In fact, what he says, verse 14, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet. Now that was an ancient Jewish practice. And it originated by traveling Jews who went through Gentile lands, which they believed were polluted and defiled by paganism and pagan idols. And so when they would enter back into the Holy Land of Israel, before they would enter back in, they would, they would shake the dirt of the pagans off of their clothes and feet so that they would not bring that which was defiled into the holy place. That's the idea. Jesus picks up on this custom... And he applies it to Israel. You get that? He says that these lost sheep of the house of Israel, if they will not respond, you are to treat them like defiled pagans. Defiled pagans. There is no more stark contrast We are of Abraham. We are of the chosen ones. We have the oracles of God. We we have the temple. We We are close to God. And Jesus says, you reject them, you reject me. You reject me, you reject the God of creation. You reject the God of creation and you're a pagan. You're a pagan. By the way, this is a very practical application of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and And verse 6, about not throwing your pearls before what? Swine. He goes on here and no provision, no planning, finally no pardon. Verse 15, no pardon. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Listen, beloved, here's a spiritual law for you. Opportunity increases accountability. Opportunity increases accountability. What do I mean? I mean the more you know, the more you're responsible. To whom much is given, much is what? Required. That is, a, that is at one sense, a, a frightening spiritual reality. To have in your presence the very emissaries of the king. And then to turn them down. Jesus says, makes you more culpable than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which have become a proverb by that time for wickedness and catastrophic loss and destruction as God rained upon them fire and brimstone, Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says here, listen, at the judgment, the judgment that precedes the age to come, 
This age will close in a judgment. The judgment that precedes the age to come will be more severe for you who have rejected Messiah than it will be for those pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to me. Rejecting, ignoring, putting your fingers in your ear to the the word of God is at best sinfully foolish. But for these people, in this day and age, in this time, to have Messiah's men among you, preaching to you the, the nearness of the kingdom and, and verifying their authority by, by performing miracles that are, that are amazing demonstrations of the powers of the age to come and to turn it down means there's no place left to go. There remains nothing for you. You have committed an act of wickedness that exceeds that of Sodom and Gomorrah. This event, this commissioning, this this sending out of the twelve apostles, beloved, is something new. This this represents a a Cumberland Gap. This This is a change in God's program. It is unprecedented. And how one responded to that set the course for their future, both in this life and in the life to come. These men had a delegated authority. They had a definitive announcement. They had a dependent approach. We don't live in that time. We, we are not in the presence of, of Messiah's men. They are not raising the dead among us. But we have something made even more sure, Peter says. We have the very Word of God. We have the full story. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as he, as he finishes there in verse 21, right, where he says that God made him who had no sin sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You remember that? That great statement about the exchange of, of our ungodliness punished on Christ and Christ's righteousness credited to our account, right, that makes us able to stand in the presence of a holy God. And a couple of verses later, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, listen, do not be like Israel when they heard the word of God and then hardened their hearts. When you hear the word of God, there is an obligation to respond. When you hear the word of salvation, there is an opportunity and there is a responsibility. Paul says, behold, today is the day of salvation. I say to you this morning, sitting right here, today is the day. This is your day. The gospel is is an indicative. It is a statement of reality. God punished on Christ the sin of the world, raised him to his right hand as ruler of the world. He is returning again in judgment and to establish his kingdom And there's a command or an imperative that flows from that, and that is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Beloved, don't miss. Do not miss. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. Thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes to understand the truth of them. Thank you for your Spirit's work of 
regenerating dead hearts. Father, I pray that even now in this place, your, your Holy Spirit would be at work in the heart of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who are feeling themselves right now tossed and turned. They, they understand the reality. They are struggling with the imperative to believe. O Lord, open their eyes, fill their hearts with faith. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.